0: One of the scariest moments in class at the end of the day is when the teacher looks to the students and says, does anyone have any questions now? That puts a lot of fear into our hearts because number one, we may not have any questions, which makes us think that maybe I missed something, maybe I should have had questions. Or two, we actually do have a question, but we don't want to ask it because then that'll say a lot about who we are. We might be thought stupid because, well, why would they ask a question like that? Or or maybe they just weren't paying attention. She already answered that question at the beginning. Why do they have to ask it now? But it comes as a double relief to us when the smartest kid in the class raises his hand or her hand and says, I have a question about this. And you're like, whoa, yes. If they have a question then I'm safe. I'm good because now I don't look like I'm so dumb. If they're the ones with all the answers and they have a question, then I don't feel so bad about that. See, this is the moment in the text when we feel a little bit of relief because John is supposed to have all the answers. He is the prophet. He is the forerunner. He is the one that was proclaimed in the text that he will make the path straight. He will prepare the way of the Lord. And then John raises his hand and asks the question, are you who you say you are? Yes. Oh, I feel so much better about myself. Because if John doesn't have the answer to that question, then what hope do I have? And now I don't have to feel like the stupidest kid in the class. See, John was supposed to have all of this clarity on Jesus. John was supposed to be the one with the words on Jesus, understanding the prophecies, understanding the scriptures. Last week, we listened to him, and he said, I am not worthy to carry even his sandals. In John 1, 29, he looks at Jesus, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Matthew 3, 30, he says, I must increase, and or he must increase, and I must decrease. John got it. He saw the picture of who Jesus was. And by the way, we've said this before, Jesus wasn't the only Messiah at the time. All of these people were walking around wondering, is this guy it? Is this guy truly have it? Is this the one who said he is what he is? Is this the one who is to come for the sake of the world? Or should we choose one of these other guys? Are you the one that has been predicted. So what's happened to John? Well, for starters, prison happened. John being in prison is a stark reminder about how the prophetic witness was being received at the time. In 1st century Judea and Israel, Galilee and all the regions surrounding it, This was a political statement. John wandered to the wilderness. He wandered to the desert where no one could bother him from the city. No one from the political realm could bother him. And yet, Herod still heard the words of John being preached in the desert and got very, very scared of this. Now, in the first century, prison was more of a way station. It was never a final destination like we think of it now. In our modern justice system, you're reprimanded to the judicial system and where you may, you may stay in, in prison for 20 years or the, the remainder of your sentence. But people were kept in prison who were awaiting trial, and they might be exonerated from their, their um, problems, or they might be exiled from the community, or in most cases, they would be executed. And so the primacy of John's execution has really caused him to change heart. Because here he is preaching and teaching, and he has these disciples who are following him, and he's pointing the way, he's pointing to Jesus, and he's teaching all his followers, saying, this man is the one that has been promised to us. Jesus is the the coming Messiah, the one who has come to save the world. And yet when his back is against the wall... He has to be doubly sure of this. He wants to make sure that after his execution, that everything that he said was true about Jesus really is true. So he just needs a little bit more information. So let's just go to Jesus and ask him straight away whether this is true. But you know what else has happened to John? There's something about Jesus that just doesn't add up. John only sends word to Jesus through his disciples after he hears what the Messiah is up to. He only changes his mind about Jesus when he gets reports in prison from his disciples about the actions of Jesus in the surrounding villages. Here's what Jesus has been up to, they might come and say to him. Here's what's been happening. And John says, wait a second. That's not what I believed a Messiah should be. See, Jesus isn't living up to John's expectations of what a Messiah should be doing. How a Messiah should come with a sword, how he should overthrow governments, that the words of God, the kingdom of God, the the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet here I am sitting in prison and here you are just going out and doing these things in the villages one-on-one. On one. I thought this was a revolution. I thought that we were supposed to raise up an army. This is not at all what I expected. In other words, Jesus was not acting like he was supposed to act. Jesus was not fitting into the nice, clean box of John's theology. Because John had this expectation. John had this belief that Jesus would come in this particular way and do these particular things and say these particular things, and it would create this new world. The kingdom of God was here, and yet I'm sitting in prison. John had predicted a much more dramatic and fire-filled ministry for Jesus. We heard John's predictions for Jesus' ministry last Sunday. John predicted a Messiah who would come and separate the true from the false. Remember, his winnowing shovel is in his hand already. The axe is at the root. The chafe will be burned in the unquenchable fire. But this was a profile of the expectations that had lingered in Israel for so long. This is why Jesus had to come when he did, because the 400 years of waiting in that prophecy, in that time of Malachi into the first century, they had interpreted it wrong. They had come through on the other side and said, this is the way it's going to happen. This is the way we've got to fit everything into our box of theology. And Jesus said, no, the box is actually about the size of a manger. That's where our theology fits in. Our theology is actually this, an unwed mother. That's the size of our theology. Our theology is actually bringing news to shepherds. Our theology is a man standing in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating wild honey instead of soft robes and living in a palace. That's our theology. For so long, so many people had known exactly what was to happen. They had been so sure of the coming Messiah. They had known what to expect, and so then they could recreate that. And other people could just stand in the market, or they could go door to door, or they could gather a following of people, and they could say, this is the kingdom. I am the one who has been declared in the scriptures. It was supposed to happen like this, and this is what I can do. That here's what happens. The scripture did promise healing for so long, but John had been waiting for it in another form. And so John's arrest and pending death put his faith And a bit of a pressure cooker. It put his faith up against a wall. He was backed into a corner. And when our backs are against the wall, we ask the question Are you the one? Jesus, where are you? If you're the one, how did I get here? How did my back get against the wall if you were the one? If I've faithfully declared you to be God, if I've faithfully declared you not only to be my Savior, but also my Lord, how did I get here? Why am I in prison if you are the one that you say you are? And see, these questions reveal our expectations. Aren't you God? Didn't you say you were God? God. Where were you? Where are you now? It feels like you're so far from me. And yet each week I come to church and declare you to be good. I declare you to be my God. I talk about you to the people in my life, the surrounding people. And yet where are you now? Where are you when I need you the most? It reveals our expectations about what we think God should do for us. It reveals our heart about what we believe our Savior and our Lord, our expectations in our life. Now, it's normal to have expectations about how life was to go. In our health, we have these expectations that... Uh, You know, we carry around a little bit of extra weight, especially around the holidays, and now I I downloaded an app and it's going to fix everything for me. Or if I just walk my 500 steps a day, I'll be cured of everything. I won't have cancer, I won't have dementia, I won't have anything go wrong with me because I got an app and it tells me when I'm healthy and when I'm not. Or even in our families, we say, you know what, we we watch this one program together and, and Christmas has been magically healed. Our expectations are, I've given so much to my children, I've given so much to uh, my parents, and they just keep asking and they keep asking and wanting and wanting. My expectations were that I would just be able to have enough money to retire and go off into the sunset and enjoy the fall and autumn of my life. And we come to church with these expectations that church needs to f- fulfill all of these things in our lives. That we keep hunting for the perfect place to go, the perfect congregation, the perfect pastor, the perfect church who has all the same ideas that I have and wants to do all of the same activities and events that I do. We're looking for something to fulfill that in us. When it comes to our marriages, we we go in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Marriages cost a lot in our own lives. But weddings, they're getting out of hand. $35,000 is the average price of a wedding nowadays. And so let's spend $35,000 to celebrate our new life together, and then at the end of the month, figure out how we're going to pay for groceries. The expectation that let's just throw $35,000 at it and it will save everything when we go into our marriage. Speaking of the smartest person in the room, Einstein's letters were published a few years back and it revealed sort of his marital expectations. Smartest guy ever. Einstein. Here's his marital expectations. Laundry should be kept in good order each week. Three meals regularly in my room. Desk neatly maintained for my use only. And a demand that his wife quit talking or leave the room whenever he requests it. That's not so smart. That marriage ended, by the way. They were divorced in 1914. We cannot hope that a fallible human partner not only shares our passion, but fulfills all our desires. We're asking marriages and people and churches and families and our bodies to do something that they aren't supposed to do. And that's normal. Our expectations as people are beyond belief. But during Advent, during our waiting, during our moments of, I can't hear you, God. Where are you? We're anticipating this great big event, but you are not here doing the things that we want. These feelings can become really intensified. We have pressure from the TV, from commercials. December to remember sales event. How many of those commercials do we see every day? Every kiss begins with K. If we don't buy these things for the person that we love, how do we know that they love us? Our expectations are just culminated in Christmas. It's the ultimate of anticipatory holidays. We wait with hope and anticipation, but it's a reality that our expectations will never be able to match in Christmas morning. And so many of us end up disappointed when we spend it with our family and open our gifts and we just have all of that waiting and we build it up and it's always better in our minds. Waiting in a lot of ways is difficult because it implies we can't do it alone. And I need someone else to come here and help me. That the hope of Christmas is in the fact that I'm just not good enough to do it by myself. But see, waiting means we remove our expectations. We set aside the things that we anticipate. We set aside how we believe things to go, how we expect them to be in the future. The great question of Advent is not, what's the reason for the season? The great question of Advent is, will you receive Jesus as he is rather than you would have him to be? Are your expectations of your heart getting in the way of treating Christ the way he is to come, the way he is to be? God does not come in the world to meet your expectations. This is not about you. This is not about John. This is not about his disciples. This is not about the people who expected something different. John... John is waiting for the same thing we're waiting for, for our expectations to be blown away. And they're not. Because the purpose of Jesus coming wasn't to blow away our expectations. And I would even go so far to say Jesus is Jesus's coming into the world wasn't simply just to change the world. Jesus came in the world to forgive our sins. That was it. When we set our sights on that, something we could not do for ourselves, something that we continue to get wrong, something that we continue to look forward in anticipation for Christ's coming to change the world, to make all things new again, and he says, whoa, 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 hold on just a second. What did you expect? This is the question that he answers with a question. Are you the one that we should have expected or should we wait for another? Well, what did you expect? I can't answer that question until you answer the question about, in your heart, who did you expect to show up? No one is above receiving Jesus, even John the forerunner. Because John has to change his expectations. He has to change his heart to receive Christ. He has to change what his expectations were and set them aside. And so Jesus asks the disciples, what did you hear and see? He doesn't ask them, did you see me do anything you expected me to do? Did you see me do the things that you expected a Savior and a Messiah to do? His question is very simple. I want you to remember. I want you to consider the things that the scripture said. And then I want you to add it up. What did you hear and see me doing? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And we take these things for granted. But did you know in the Old Testament, in all of the scriptures, in all of the prophecies, in all of the things that Elijah and Elisha did, Moses and Noah and David, and all the great things that the minor prophets had gone through in the scriptures, not one man who was blind, was given sight back. That miracle of healing is distinct for Jesus. It is the one sign that could not be faked. And Jesus says, what did you hear and see? What did you hear Just when you think you understand who I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to do, once you think that you've got it all figured out, once you've got me in your box all nice and tidy, you discover that you have not yet begun to capture the dimension and the magnitude of what Jesus has come to do. I'll usher in a new kingdom, but on the way, you know what that looks like? people are gonna start to see. People are gonna start to hear. People are gonna walk again. They're gonna be cleansed. And more importantly, people who are so desperate for good news are gonna have good news again. Jesus' answer is such a tough one. It's a tough one in the first century. It's a tough one for us. I can't answer for you. You have to decide on your own whether I'm for real. You have to look at all of the evidence and you have to make a determination. And we get so frustrated with people. It's like, can't you see it? Don't you see what's happening? Why do you believe in Jesus? Can't you see it? Don't you understand? Jesus did what he said he would do. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets, not in the way that we expect. He is the one we have been waiting for. How come you can't see it? And Jesus says, consider also, what did you think you were going to see when you went out to the wilderness? Did you think you'd see this dainty little reed just blown about by the current political climate? Do you think you'd see an Amazon sales rep who wanted to give you exactly as you wanted? Did you think you'd see someone wearing beautiful clothing who lived in a palace? What did you think you were going to see when you went to the desert? Jesus concludes his teaching in Matthew 11 with these verses in 16 through 19. He said, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John, he came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, oh, he's got a demon. And then Jesus came eating and drinking, and they say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proven right by her deeds. No one listened and no one was satisfied. They looked at John and they said, he's got a demon. He's not eating enough. He's not drinking enough. We can't trust him. And then they looked at Jesus and they said, he drinks too much. He eats too much. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We can't trust him. And yet wisdom is proven by her deeds. Our hope in Jesus is never unfounded. We will always be justified by our deeds. We will always be justified if we stick to Jesus, if we expect to be healed, if we expect to see and walk and to do those things for others, we will never be forsaken. Our hope is in Jesus because of all the things we've heard and all the things we've seen and all the things that have come before us. We just have to stop for a moment and realize, I'm still here. Jesus has brought me this far. My trust and my faith and my reliance on him have been rewarded every time. Today's text is a good opportunity to reflect on the gap between our expectations for the Messiah and the reality of the Messiah. And John the Baptist is that physical embodiment of that expectation. That every time that we feel like we're stuck, every time we feel like our back is against the wall, every time we feel like we're in jail, we have to think of John. We have to think of that physical embodiment of that gap of where are my expectations and what is the reality of who Jesus is? Am I asking from too much in this instance? But I think it's also an invitation for self-examination. It teaches us to ask this question: Do I have ears to hear? Am I listening? Or am I just like a spoiled child who will neither dance nor mourn? And these moments of waiting and these moments of anticipation and these, this thrill of hope that we have in this third Sunday of Advent, we have to ask the question, am I ready to receive Christ as he's coming? Or am I wanting something different? Do I refuse to dance Do I refuse to hear the music that Christ himself is playing? The promise of this text is that those who wait on, those who wait for, those who wait with will run. They will soar. They will mount up on the wings of an eagle. Our patience is rewarded. And in that doubt, Jesus comes to meet us and asks us questions of ourselves that we need to ask this morning.